0: Then, when he sat down and taught the people from the boat, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, you've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats full, that they began to see, sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, from now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up shore, left everything and followed him. John nine thirteen through fifteen. They brought to the Pharisees a man who had been blind. Now the day which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. John nine thirty. The man answered, Now that is remarkable you don't know where he comes from, yet he opened his eyes. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Yeah, okay.
1: Nice job. This past summer, when we uh, were kind of setting ourselves up to go through this series on our faith story, I, uh, I found a, a little video clip that... Uh, is very relevant to the things that we're going to talk about this morning. So I thought I'd show it to you again. I've seen it like four or five times, and I still kind of get something out of it. So it's a little clip, and, uh, and if we can hit some of these floods so that you can see it a little clearer, that'd be great. Uh, but uh, watch this thing, and uh, see if you can relate at all.
2: Presenting Real Christians of Genius. Real Christians of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. speaking person. Mr. speaking person. When conventional wisdom said no one can understand what you're communicating, you dared to prove them wrong. Dared to prove them wrong. You knew your neighbor didn't know words like Trinity, Salvation, and Eschatology. But you overuse them anyway. You can't stop when people told you what they believed, you had the guts to laugh in their face and wish them luck in everlasting retribution. You gotta be so stand proud, chosen one. Yea, though your words confuse the masses, thou knowest what thy meaneth.
1: Well, in our story of building our faith story and trying to determine how is it that we can have a faith story and be real and authentic and be our personality? Uh, Do we have to do it the way these guys did it? So it really is a, a time for us to really factor in some of these variables and to recognize that in the personality. And in the creation that God uh, did that special work when he put the mud together that created you, uh, that you are a witness as you are. So we're going to kind of play with that a little bit for the next, uh, for the next few minutes. When we talk about the idea of evangelizing or evangelization, it is scary. Uh, matter of fact, I could announce that tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, we're, we're going to meet here at the church and we're going to go out with little tracks. And we're going to go knock on doors. And uh, all you have to do is put your foot in the door and read the people the track. Uh, and that's what you do. And get through the whole little track. Get through the whole thing. Don't you dare stop at point two. Get to number four. And, uh, and we'll do as many people as we can and get as many saved as we can. Uh, now. That may may touch your heart. Like, you know, I think we really ought to do that. We ought to touch people for Jesus. We ought to make a difference. On the other hand, um, I know that if I uh, asked you to do that, uh, and I announced that we are having that, that I would be here alone with all those wonderful little tracks. (laughs) And what I would do is I would get in my car. I'd go over to Starbucks have a cup of coffee, and uh, recognize that maybe my methodology needed some work. When I was a young boy, we were trained in kind of confrontational evangelism. Matter of fact, I went to classes as a, as a preteen and as a teen, where we learned how to ask questions and to, to bring people to understand uh, who God was. And, and we would go out street evangelizing on the street. Now, in some cultures, that still works. And it may be a very, very effective, but in Covina, Azusa, and to the uttermost parts of the world around here, <clears throat> you're liable to get shot or beat up. It's just not the way we do things. It is not in our culture. And, uh, but, but I was trained that way, and uh, we would go out and do that. I, it's the way my family raised us in that high value. Uh, we had some tools, different kinds of tools. I remember the Four spiritual laws. How many remember the four spiritual laws? Uh, if the person raised their hand next to you and you you did not, it, it, it's because you uh, you were born sometime after about 1985. Uh, there there was a whole era of uh, four spiritual laws. Campus Crusade for Christ used them. It's translated in all the languages of the world. Been one of the extremely effective tools. In uh, clarifying what does it mean to make a decision uh, to follow Christ, uh, <clears throat> sometimes people have used the hundred dollar bill one. Uh, that's where they take a hundred dollar bill, uh, copy it off somehow, and uh, print inside the gospel message, the four steps to become a Christian. Fold it so it looks like a hundred dollar bill. So I've read one. I read one one time that says i did not leave you a tip of money i left you a tip that will allow you to go to heaven and so they had the four deals and you're supposed to give that out in restaurants and that waitress would be so happy uh, for your little (laughs) phony baloney deal and uh yeah she could really feed her family on that one so and i've seen that thing before matter of fact down in Covina on friday night if you go down to the uh flea market there and uh uh, in, in our little old town, there's a guy that uh, the newspaper took a picture of him. He had a big old sign that says, uh, uh, turn to Jesus or go to hell or something like that. One of those. And the man's standing there with this huge sign and he just kind of stands there and walks around. Uh, I note that uh, very few people talk to him, if any. And, uh, but he just kind of does it that way. And that's how he tends to approach it, as uh, some people do. Now, when I was uh, doing youth work, we used to do it a little bit differently. We thought, man, I'm not so sure about the standing on the corner. We'll do something different. We had burger bashes. And a burger bash was when you uh, would bring, you tell kids at the high school, the local high school, uh, on Friday night you're going to have uh, free hamburgers and Cokes and stuff over at so-and-so's house. And so you would uh, put the word out in little flyers. And sure enough, uh, on Friday night, uh, and you had a lot of barbecues out there, we, we literally, we had a problem. So many kids came that we youth workers had to learn crowd control. And uh, then the police would come thinking that we were having a dope party. And uh, we'd have to explain, no, this is a Jesus party. Uh-huh. Sure enough. But it was a way to attract people. And they would come. And uh, then we'd do the band and everything. And then we would tell them about our Youth for Christ Club and, and how you could be a part of that. And that was, a, a, that was an effective a means of doing that as well. Music, food, tends to connect with pretty much everybody, and very, very, very successful. And kids would bring their friends. Uh, they would do that. Remember the Left Behind movie series, not the book. How many remember the movie? Oh, not enough of you. I'll have to show it sometime. It's a it's a little drama thing of a bunch of military people, and and uh, there's. The big extraction had occurred, and all the Christians leave, and then the rest of the people are down here, and, and then some of them—I don't—I don't remember very well. I know it just—it literally scared people to say, "I need Jesus, and I need Jesus now," because if not, the army's going to come and take me away. It was one of those kinds of things, and uh, uh, effective, uh, maybe for some, and maybe at that time, but not today. That methodology is not. I remember a knock on the door. It was a Monday night. We were in Glendora. Uh, we just moved up this way from Downey, serving uh, on faculty at APU, and uh, <clears throat> we visited a local church. It happened to be a Presbyterian church. We were not real familiar with the Presbyterian church, at least I wasn't, and uh, I thought that they were a little bit liturgical, and a little sticky, and I wondered if they were Christians. Uh, well, when you're a Nazarene, you know, you have to you know, put people in the right, pro- in the right category, and uh, Sure enough, on Monday night, uh, there's this knock on the door, and there's four guys that are there, uh, nice-looking gentlemen, and uh, they said that they were from the local Presbyterian church that we had visited and that they would like to come in, and uh, we had a few minutes to to answer some questions. So we said, sure. So they come into our house. Kimmy was just a baby. And uh, they sat down, and they kind of did a little bit of niceties, you know, for a minute or two, And then they broke open the plan, and they started to ask a series of questions, and we answered the questions. And then finally, they got to the last question. And uh, I I was a little bit familiar with this approach. However, I'd never used it, nor had I been the object of this approach. I'd been the object of a lot of approaches, uh, especially walking down Hollywood Boulevard, Sunset in Los Angeles. You get asked to join, to be converted to a lot of things, even guys in orange robes uh, with the little clanger things walking around. They ask you to join them. Everybody wants you to join them. But they, they said, um, the question really is, uh, do you know, if you died tonight, do you know where you would uh, spend eternity? Well, that, that, that was a really good question for, for Lindy. And, and really, and for me as well, because uh, <laughs> <laughs> because we want to know. <laughs> Later on, I... Got closer to eternity and uh, recognized it's even more of a particular question. But, but you have to have some concept of eternity to understand that, or at least to have thought about it. And they asked that question, and we said, yes, uh, we are going to spend eternity with Jesus. And uh, we were born-again believers. And it, there's some terms you can get rid of people. Yeah. We're born-again believers. Born-again usually works. Uh, and they say, oh, not real sure you're Presbyterian, but you might be. You're probably more Baptist Little did they know I was a stealth Nazarene. <laughs> so they were nice, and then they left. So that was, that was an approach that was very, very popular for a decade or so. But when working with kids, we did learn something, even while all these methodologies were going on. And there was something that we did with kids, and that was, we call it, teens reaching teens. Uh, Students reaching students, which is still the mantra for Youth for Christ Today and youth work everywhere. Uh, Like-minded cultural people uh, reaching like-minded cultural people. Gee, Daryl, I wonder if there's a missiological concept there somewhere. And uh, in that we learned that nobody was more powerful in witness than a student to a student. And when you had uh, a bunch of the student body officers and other uh, people of influence, in the local schools, in your youth group, you built them up. You, you taught them to be disciples, and you taught them to engage people with their faith and to live it out consistently in their daily lives. And uh, that was impacting. Did the cold call stuff work? Um, maybe it did, for some. Uh, did the lukewarm stuff work? Uh, yeah. My dad, my dad was a cold call guy. My dad was a public school administrator, but he was a lay pastor. And every day he'd witness to somebody. And one time he told me, he says, you know, he says, I, I didn't witness it to anybody a certain day. I said, oh, well, what would you do? He's out laying in bed, and I hadn't witnessed. Says, so I got up, got dressed, went down to the coffee shop. He said, ordered a cup of coffee, a piece of apple pie with some cheddar cheese on top. Anybody understand cheddar cheese on top of apple pie? Is there anybody here? Hallelujah. There's a couple of us. And he's sitting there. He says, and I I sat next to this guy. And he said, I told him about Jesus. I said, well, what happened? He says, oh, he was very nice. He listened. He said, "Well, well, what happened? I don't know. Just finished my apple pie with cheddar cheese and coffee, went home, went back to sleep. But my dad was the kind of guy who just felt like every day he was going to share his faith. Well, uh, that was one way uh, to do it. But the secret of my dad was really far beyond that. I'm not real sure whether that worked or not. It doesn't matter. But I can tell you what he really did. More than one occasion, and on several occasions, as a little boy, with my sisters and my mom at a little bitty 700-square-foot, maybe 800-square-foot, little house in Southgate, one of those little bungalows that fill the city. There would be another person there. The real witness I have come to recognize is not just that my dad told him about Jesus. It's that if they needed a place to sleep, he'd bring them home. If they needed clothes, we had clothes for them. And then he offered them a job in some apartments that we had over in Bell Gardens. We had apartments in Bell Gardens in Norwalk. Not in the city of Bell. My dad was a little smarter than that. And these guys would clean up, get sober, get a job. The next Sunday, they'd give their testimony in church. I know how witness was for my father. It may have been words, probably not nearly as much as the action of compassion. That was what I observed in my home. That's the way I was raised. That's what I think is important. Billy Graham has crusades. They're wonderful. About 2% of those decisions or less actually end up in a church. It's a wonderful proclamation. It gets world coverage, but... How effective is it? It's just one little piece in the puzzle. Nothing is more dramatic than your life rubbing up against another life and living for Christ in the workplace or in the recreational place or in the school, at the school, wherever you attend. That's where it really matters. And that's how to be a witness in the 21st century. And that's how to have a faith story that really does uh, engage with culture. Now, in our story this morning that Maddie read so beautifully, it's a story about the Sea of Galilee, sometimes different names were given to that sea, uh, another name was Tiberius, but it's the same place. And the sea's about 680 feet below sea level. And if you were to go there today, they have a little monument, they had a, a big, the, the sea emptied here a while back, a few years ago, and they found a boat down at the bottom of the See, so they brought it up and they fixed it, and they call it the Jesus boat. Whether it's the actual Jesus boat or not doesn't matter. But there it is, and you can see the Jesus boat where Jesus sat there and preached that day and then went out to sea and, and had the fishermen go out and fill their nets with fish. That's, that's, uh, that's the place. And the kind of fish that they caught were, I mean, this was the good stuff. This was the fish that they would sell. Fishermen were uh, better than average wage earners. And uh, so they, they were people of, of some means. Now, let me just kind of go through a couple of those verses again to get the setting. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he, he saw at the water's edge two boats. They were left there. While the fishermen were washing their nets uh, up on the shore, he got into one of the boats, the one belonging to a particular guy, Simon Peter. And he asked him to put on a put me out a little bit from shore, just a little bit here. And he did that. He sat down and he started to teach. Now it was customary when a rabbi was going to teach, he sat down. So when the rabbi sat down, the sermon was going to begin. So he kind of got that part. Oh, not so much today. When the man stands up, the sermon begins. And then some of you would say, and it should be time to sit down. No, no, i got a few more minutes. i got a few more minutes. So this is how they did it in those days. And he sat there and he taught. And the way the configuration of the sea was, it was like a natural amphitheater, like the the Greek theater or some of the places that we have here in Los Angeles, the Hollywood Bowl. It kind of set itself where he could be heard. And the fourth verse says, and when he finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Let your nets down. Now, the fishermen were sitting there going, sure, for they had been fishing all night the night before, and, that, and that's when they fished. They fished all night. They weren't day fisher, fishermen, they were night fishermen, and then they'd go to market in the morning and they'd sell it, Then they'd go back out that night, and that's how they did things. But the night before that Jesus wandered by here to sit down and do this message, they hadn't caught one fish. Now, that was highly unusual. Any, you know, I don't know how to say, uh, I guess I I should say fisher persons. Someone's so clumsy. Uh, Well, I'm just going to go ahead and be absolutely wrong. Any fishermen in the room, how many have gone out and been totally skunked? That is a, highly uh, uh, technical term that carries with it all kinds of despair, language, disappointment, sometimes even some four-letter words that eke out. Uh, But it simply means you didn't get one, not one. And some of you have gone out early in the morning and stayed all day into the evening and not caught a fish. Well, these guys, that's what happened. And boy, do you get the feeling after a day of fishing and nothing. Not even a nibble with power bait. It's a secret. If you don't know what power bait is, you don't know the secret of catching a trout. Don't go with all that natural stuff. You know, and don't do jigs and stuff and flies and all that and try to make it so natural. Just bit a good glob of that fluorescent power bait. Stick it on a hook and throw it out there. And uh, that fish will grab that thing and you've got one. It's a lot of fun. Well, they were empty-handed. And then Simon says in the fifth verse, he says, Master, we've worked hard all night haven't caught a thing. But because you say so, we'll give it another whirl. How many times have you tried something and it didn't work? How many times have you tried to be obedient to God and something didn't come together? You tried it and it didn't work. Would you try it again? Would you do it one more time? Would you... Invite that neighbor one more time over for a cup of coffee? Would you take one more time to try to penetrate that veil of that person who tends not to be too interested in just you, let alone the four spiritual laws that you might be wanting to give them? Or your three companions that want to come over and go through a series on a survey? So he says, I'll do it. I'll do it. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that the nets began to break. They had to bring their friends out. A powerful response. So this passage tells us that Peter, Simon, he obeyed. But he had to stick to, uh, he had to, stick to it even though his mind, his experience, his logic said there's no fish in the lake today. But Jesus said, just try it one more time. I, I, trust me, try it one more time. And he trusted Jesus enough to try it one more time. No doubt with a great deal of doubt. Can you relate to that? Has Jesus asked you to do something and you have not been successful, so you said never again? Have you ever tried to teach a Sunday school class when the kids... Did not pay attention. A youth group tried to read something, tried to engage in something, and just didn't work. Well, that would be a good uh, example of this particular passage. It was worth noting in this particular case that Jesus focused uh, his whole attention that day on ordinary people. That's also important. It's just a bunch of guys hanging out at the sea. A crowd gathers. Some fishermen that smell. You know, fishermen uh, they work with fish, and fish smell. Have you ever picked that up? And uh, can you imagine, after an hour or two, uh, slimy, it's kind of slimy guys, you know, those little things, and uh, they just kind of have that, haven't you noticed? And, uh, and they're, just, they're just real guys. You know, uh, what people do for a living is, uh, is oftentimes uh, reflected in their, their, their clothes, uh, their vehicles, their houses, uh, in their demeanor, their language, their culture. And uh, these guys were rough, uh, longshoremen. They were, they were fishermen. They were not rabbis. They were not scholars. They were not, uh, they were not unreligious, but they were not religious in a sense of a rabbi or a priest. And so Peter was going to give one more try to this idea that Jesus had asked him to do. And Jesus had won some credibility with Peter, and that's the key. And Jesus has won credibility with me. And, you know, I believe he's won credibility with you as well. And in that credibility, it's worth him asking you one more time to work through something that you've not yet worked through. He's asking you to do that. And trust him for it. And the next time you put the nets out, you might be just very surprised what shows up. You might be able to resolve a conflict. You might be able to repair a family matter you may be able to touch someone's life in a particular way or bring some kind of joy to them or at least some counsel and some wisdom. Jesus hung around mostly with the common folks. I've noticed, and in my classes, I talk to my students, and I'm so glad a couple of them are here today. And I talk about this. I think you should have another vocation along with ministry. Uh, learn something else, so you know what real people do, and they'll listen to you. If you go straight into ministry and get all the collars and get all the uh, you know all the um, acc- uh, and all those things that you put on and get the title, oh, listen—we were at a wedding yesterday and I participated. I like this Episcopal Church. This is cool, and, and the guy you know's got all that pretty stuff on and uh, they do all that stuff, you know, and they they got all that, and uh, I was a part of it. So I was reading some scripture. And they put me in the bulletin. Oh, I just want you to know, folks, about your pastor. Oh, you'll be very very happy. <clears throat> Here's my title. The Reverend Dr. Gordon L. Coulter. My title was longer than the piece I had in the wedding. <laughs> I'd tell you there were more Reverend Dr. Cannon priest, boy, they like long titles. And uh, I was sitting there reading that thing, and I said, man, you know, I'd read this title. And uh, frankly, by reading this title, I wouldn't listen to the guy. The title's too long. So there was credibility because Jesus touched people at the point of their normal lives, their normal lives, their normal vocations. So your first feeling is this. God had chosen you with all your baggage, To follow him. You got baggage. What is it? Divorce, failure, criminal record, trouble with IRS, whatever it is. Baggage. But he chose you with all your baggage to follow him. And little did I know through the years of working at different jobs that God would use those jobs so I could relate better to people. I had a quote come not long ago from a friend of mine. Uh, and he said this, a police officer, I was counseling him, he was going through a divorce. He said this to me. He says, you know, he says, you know why I've come to you? And I said, well, I, I hope it's because I'm chaplain for the department. He says, well, that isn't it. What is it? You wore the blue. I trust you. I trust you. You're one of the workers. You're one of the guys, you're, you're, you understand us. A- and that's a value in our faith story that people understand us and we understand them. And we spend enough time in the ditches to understand what it's like to shovel a little bit of that stuff or to try to stay awake on a, on a graveyard shift. And, uh, and at about 4 o'clock in the morning, kind of decide that man was not made to be awake at this time. And you want, you're looking through your Bible trying to find a verse that says that. So, so you can change the world. It's it, it just the way the world is. That's the way life is. And to not have experienced some of those things makes you less effective in connecting with people with your faith story. So if you're not a preacher, you have your story. Use it. It's a relationship. Be authentic. Be caring. Reach others. Find ways to touch their lives and to assist them as they try to fill their nets. And as they figure out that much of it's broken and many times the fish drop right through and they don't have enough. When Peter saw this stuff, something happened, the 8th verse. He fell down and he what? He worshipped Jesus. He was just impacted highly that Jesus was the Messiah. Something's going on here. And he was on his face before Jesus. Now, I, I just need a comment. Peter did not do that because he was rich all of a sudden because he had all these fish. This is not a name it, claim it passage. You'll have to go elsewhere to find it if you think it's there. It's not here. This is the name passage. This isn't what you get from it. This is that that person, that Jesus, that's God in the body, that person did this. And I worship him. The word became flesh flesh and went fishing with me. That's kind of the idea. So this surefire kind of guy, he's the kind of guy that was uh, hitting it straight. Are you that kind of guy? Are you the one that sort of makes it straight? You want to hit it right on the head? Tony Morales, raise your hand, Tony. 35 years ago, on the 7th of October, that would be in 1975, he came to Christ and has been sober ever since. He has 35 years of sobriety. Now, Tony is the kind of guy that Peter is. He is an in-your-face, hit-it-straight, no-nonsense kind of guy. This Marine that came, lived through Vietnam and lived through alcoholism and lived through addiction and lived through all other kinds of things. Has an incredible story. And when he does James Club and he does his ministry, it's a kind of a direct approach. You ought to go listen in sometime. It's a direct approach. And it works. That's how Tony is. God made him more like Peter. So there you are. But we're not all that way. And the second part that that, that Maddie uh, read was about a guy that we we don't even know his name. All we know is the guy was born blind. A particular fascinating passage of scripture because Jesus healed a lot of people, and he didn't heal a lot of people. In this case, this guy's there, and Jesus comes along, and you know the story. He notes that this guy is blind, and the disciples say, whose sin is it that caused this man to be blind? Is it his father and mother or his own? Because it was assumed that there was some kind of an STD that went around that either came to the parent or the cause of themselves that caused blindness, which is true. You can be blind because of certain sexually transmitted disease. And so this guy's blind, and Jesus says, it has nothing to do with sin. It's not his own sin, nor that of his parents. The reason he's blind is so that I can be shown to be God. It's to reveal myself to you. And so this guy is there, and Jesus did the thing about the mud and all that. Interesting about the mud. That was more of a black magic kind of thing. Not, it wasn't really a part of the normal Jewish treatment for stuff, but it was sort of a, one of those dark deals where you stick things in people's eyes like mud. And they did that to this, to this guy, and he goes over and washes it out, and, of course, you know the story. Then he runs around, and he can see for the first time he's an adult. We know he's an adult because he's been out of the house. He's, he's of age. It says so in the passage. His parents disclaimed that the fact that they were responsible for him anymore, the guy like a maniac was running around going, something wonderful happened. Now, let me ask you this question. Just, just, we're just trying to pull personalities here and how our faith works together. Uh, I, I know none of you do this. I, I, I'm convinced because you're smart enough to know what the odds are. But if you won the lotto and it was, oh, I just threw out $300 million. Doesn't matter, you can throw out anything. Uh, So you won $300 million. You're you're sitting here in church. Uh, The preacher is standing trying to get this great message across that will actually impact your life and transform the world. And uh, doing it with everything he's got. And you happen to be a little bit bored. So you're flipping through the numbers. And you'd written down the winning numbers the night before. Because you watched it on one of those channels that actually talk about it. And you're doing that and you see yours, and you see that one, and you see yours, and you see that one, and you check, you check, and you check, and all of a sudden, you say to your neighbor, now the preacher's still preaching. How many of you would just maintain total respect silence and attention on that dynamic sermon that's being preached. How many of you? Boy, you, I know exactly what you do. At that point, when you figure I'm three, I have $300 million, uh, I can repair anything that I break. Uh, uh, I, can, I can yell and scream and ruin the service and there's no offering, then I can make it up. There's nothing that can happen that, that, I, that I can do that I can't fix now, that I have $300 billion. And your personality would absolutely shift from the quiet, demure, uh, educated, uh, uh, proper group that you are. You'd be nuts. You'd go nuts. This guy went nuts. We really don't know his natural personality. He was a beggar, he was a blind beggar. I mean, I haven't seen too many blind beggars jumping around, you know, they just tend to be blind beggars, kind of on the corner. Blind, and with a sign, and help me out. But he goes nuts. He goes running around looking at people, looking at their face, and looking at things for the first time. Looks at a camel, and looks at a woman for the first time. You know, I thought about that a while. Wouldn't it be interesting to be a full adult, and and all of your life kind of have this idea about what all of the that soft voice looked like, and then to actually see one. Now, in that culture, they're covered up pretty good. It's a good thing. If you were fast forward to the 21st century and you watch TV, the guy would probably go nuts. Uh, but he could see things he had never seen before, and he went nuts. And, uh, and so the passage says he was quizzed by the church leaders. And, and uh, this, is the, cause this is kind of the, the rap to this thing. He was quizzed by the church leaders how this happened? No good God did this, not the God of Abraham. There must have been some kind of a demon that healed you. Inferred. Inferred. He says, "Listen, here's what I know. Once I was blind, and what? Now I see. I don't have any idea who this guy is. You know, you have to remember, dudes, I've been blind all my life. I haven't seen anybody except you right now. And so he runs around and does some more. Then they have a little meeting with the parents, and they have a little meeting with this guy, and then the high priest come around, and they have a little meeting with him, and they say, listen, dude, unless you say that this is uh, some kind of a demonic thing or something uh, not of God, we're going to kick you out of church. <laughs> so they kicked him out of church. Wow. Kicked him out of church. And so he was asked to leave. Why? Because once he was blind, now he can see. And the later encounter is, he found out who Jesus was, went to see him, and he said this. Jesus said, do you you know who it is you are now seeing, that you're looking at? No. He says, I'm Jesus. Do you want to believe? He said, yes. I believe. And there was a dynamic transformation in his life, far better than his eyes. Now I want to I'm going to end with a little story. The, uh, oh, I guess I missed a couple fill ins. You can fill them in. You can figure it out, can't you? So the second one was How has God equipped you? Are you more like Peter or the blind man? Which is your personality? And then the third fill in is the ongoing one. It's this one How can God empower your story to touch someone else? And I end with this story. It's out of a great book I'm reading called The Rechurch. A guy falls into a deep hole and starts yelling for help. Soon a doctor happens by and hears the anguished cry. The doctor peers down into the hole, writes a prescription, throws it to the guy below, and keeps walking. Before long, a priest comes by, and he peers into the hole, seeing the man below. The priest writes out a prayer and throws it down before walking on the guy in the hole starts yelling even louder as soon as friend joe comes by joe coordinator of first impressions our joe hey joe help me i'm down in the hole so joe jumps down into the hole our guy says what have you done now we're both stuck down here in the hole. Yeah, says Joe calmly. But I've been down here before, and I know the way out. I've been without Jesus before. And now I know him. I know the way Let's pray. Lord, we know people that are in the hole. And we know that a tract or just a word may be of encouragement, but doesn't get them out of the hole. We know that. And you've asked us to jump in with them, and it, that's hard. That's abandonment. That's, that's sacrifice. That's, that's radical. That's craziness. And by doing that, you have said, get down in the hole with them and mix it up with them. And then lead them out as I have led you. So we know what the message is here. Whether our personality is like Peter or whether it's like the blind man, may our faith story reflect that we are are touching people's lives. We are relating with them and leading them out of the hole. In Jesus' name, amen.